Welcome back to Kid Q&A, where we're digging into your biggest questions about parenting and your kids' health. I'm Jana, a senior manager at The Skim, and mom to an almost two-year-old named Lou. Today, we're talking about viruses. Even though our relationship with COVID-19 looks different now than it did a year ago, we're still a little unsure about how worried we should be. And it seems like there are always new things to be stressed about, like this big spike in cases of respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. Luckily, Dr. Kristen Moffitt has some answers for us. She's an infectious disease specialist at Boston Children's Hospital. Let's get into it. We chatted last time about COVID mostly and how it affected decisions last spring. And the world is very different now, but we got a lot of questions about a COVID booster for kids. Now that children are vaccinated against COVID-19, which is so wonderful, my son got vaccinated in July and he's fully vaccinated, but at only two years old, he's not eligible for the booster. That said, we just heard from the CDC that kids as young as five are eligible. So I wanted to ask you a few specific questions. First up, will the under fives need to get a booster at some point? And then for kids five and older, should parents rush out and get that shot now? In terms of the first question about boosters for under five, it is possible that at some point in time, boosters may be recommended for children under five. We should be getting some data about the durability of the immune response in those children under five who receive their primary series. And based on that, it is possible that there will be a recommendation in the coming months about the Omicron adapted boosters for children under five, but it's it's not there yet. We did just get authorization of the Pfizer booster for those over five and the Moderna booster for those over six. So those would be recommended for children who are at least two months out from having received any COVID-19 vaccine, whether it was them finishing their primary series or them getting one of the original boosters. They do not need to get a booster that's of the same brand if their child completed the Pfizer primary series, they could get the updated Moderna booster and vice versa. And we know that these updated boosters will provide better protection, both against infection, but also against severe infection with the Omicron strain compared to the original vaccines. And we know that the immunity from those original primary series wanes over time. So I would encourage anyone who has not had one of those boosters and who's not had a vaccine in the last two months to pursue getting one of these Omicron updated boosters if they're eligible for it. And that's especially true for children if they are back in group settings, such as indoors and headed back into classrooms or back into indoor activities, because there's a good chance that we will see even more COVID-19 transmission as more people are moving indoors. The one group of people who I do think could hold off on running out and getting one of these boosters would be people who've had a very recent COVID-19 infection. People who've had an infection within the last three months, that infection was most certainly due to an Omicron strain. And it's reasonable to allow about three months of time for the immune response to natural infection to have completely matured before going out and getting one of those boosters, because we know immunity from natural infection wanes over time as well. So those are my general recommendations for families right now. And any other questions they can absolutely review with their pediatrician. Got it. Thank you. That's super helpful. I know lots of questions as the guidelines change. So I really appreciate it. Yes. 
And as far as flu season coming up, not just COVID, I feel like the pandemic made us totally rethink all of our risk around all contagious diseases like flu, even the ones that we thought of as, you know, relatively low risk in our previous pandemic life, which is definitely, it's been good in some ways for us to be more careful, wash our hands more often. But sometimes it's hard to know if we're being too afraid and too cautious. So what's your advice for parents who are trying to figure out the best course of action for the virus season this year? Is it better to keep on hunkering down or should we treat the risk of flu and RSV the same as we have now started to treat the risk of COVID? Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think we collectively, (laughs) as a global population, and then certainly here within the U.S., have never collectively been through the experience of knowing so intimately how a respiratory viral season was unfolding. I mean, we basically had been in an ongoing respiratory viral season with one specific virus for two and a half years now. So I think it's really caused us to rethink other respiratory viruses and what can be done to keep ourselves safe from them. One thing that became very clear from this pandemic is that a lot of the practices that we were using to avoid getting COVID-19 are very effective at avoiding other respiratory infections. We saw really record-setting low numbers of influenza infection, RSV infection, and other respiratory viral infection. Bacterial pneumonias even were lower than usual during the COVID-19 pandemic. I think every family needs to sort of do a little bit of a recalibration and maybe have a conversation as parents or as a family about what your risk tolerance is. Is there anybody in the family who has any underlying conditions that puts them at higher risk for getting a severe infection with any of these respiratory viruses? Is there anybody in their immediate circle of close friends and family who has any of those risk factors? And I think once that's established and once a family has some level setting around what their own risk tolerance is, I think they can move forward with trying to really get back to life as normal with a few additional considerations. Those might include if you have scheduled time coming up that you're going to maybe be visiting with elderly grandparents or visiting with somebody indoors who may have one of those uh, underlying conditions that puts them at higher risk for severe infection, maybe the family collectively buckles down for the seven days before that planned meetup to really avoid exposure to respiratory viruses as much as possible. That may mean that the parents are going to put a mask back on when they're headed into the grocery store or they're going to be in crowded indoor areas. Maybe they fold COVID-19 home testing into their routine for the day or two and then maybe the day of that visitation with an individual who they consider high risk. So we've learned a lot. I think we really need to be reassured and celebrate even to some extent what it is that we've learned throughout this pandemic about the additional tools and measures that we have to keep ourselves and our families and our loved ones safe. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Almost like we have more armor now, we have more knowledge, rather than, you know, in 2019, we were kind of just winging it. So I think that's a nice spin on what's been a very, very difficult experience for everyone to think about that as taking what we've learned and applying it. So thank you for that. Let's talk about newborns. We wanted to ask if brand new parents should not let their friends and families hold their babies this flu season. I know this is a difficult calibration to make about, you know, people are so excited about your new baby and want to celebrate and want to hold the baby and maybe give it a little kiss on the head, but that can be risky for a brand new baby. So do you have advice about how to navigate those conversations when you do need to limit contact and how to kind of tell a new grandparent, 
here's how much I'm okay with you holding my child. And here's where I need to set some guidelines and some boundaries. Yeah, I, I think this is going to look a little bit different for every family as well. I think this is another opportunity for new parents to have that conversation around setting some expectations for their closest circle of family and friends. For those who are going to have close contact with the newborn, make sure that you are feeling 100% healthy. If you have a little bit of what you think are just mild cold symptoms, don't assume that those are allergies. Maybe take a pause, give it 24 to 48 hours to see how those symptoms unfold. Maybe even do a COVID-19 test if possible, and certainly avoid contact with the newborn infant while those symptoms really sort themselves out. And then I think it really comes down to, again, parents assessing what their risk tolerance is for their newborn. If that means asking grandparents who maybe they worry that these are grandparents who have a lot of potential exposures to respiratory viruses based on either what they do for work or what they do socially or how they live their lives. Maybe the request from the parents is that that grandparent mask up when they're going to spend time around a newborn. Those are all discussions that really need to happen on an individual family basis. I know it can be uncomfortable. But those first two months in particular of a newborn's life really are particularly important ones in terms of how much more susceptible they are to infection. And it's a relatively short period of time for a two-month-old to get through that first round of immunizations with their pediatrician and to be feeding and growing and doing everything they need to do from that two-month period and on. You can start to, I think, breathe a little easier, maybe let up a bit on those restrictions and that degree of caution after that time point. But it, again, will really be based on every family's level of risk tolerance and what they're comfortable with in terms of exposure for their newborn. That makes sense. Those early days are certainly so nerve-wracking. Everything is so new and so scary. And so that's, that's great advice. I have another question about just generally viruses, one that I relate to very much. How can a parent know if a virus that seems routine, just, you know, regular cold symptoms, a fever, nothing too crazy, is actually more serious? And when is the right time to call the doctor? I have, you know, had my child get a little sick and you're like, oh, I think it's probably nothing. But you have a voice in your head saying, you know, what if, what if, what if? When do you know that you should call the doctor? Yeah. Well, first I would say that if it is causing you stress, it doesn't hurt to make a phone call. You can always start with a phone call to your pediatrician's office any time of day. Someone is answering the phone and able to respond to your specific questions and even give reassurance over the phone. But also certainly detect whether there is something concerning that you as a parent are seeing that does warrant a bit more action and maybe an evaluation. But in general, if a child is having an illness with a fever, those are, of course, very common, extremely common in children who are attending daycare, for example, it is completely reasonable to start with fever-reducing medication. Every child looks uncomfortable. They're probably fussier than usual when they have a fever. Think about being an adult with a fever and how miserable that makes you feel. So it's really important to try to get the fever down and then really assess your child's behavior and temperament once the fever has come down. If once the fever comes down, they perk up quite a bit, they're interested in drinking something, they're interested in playing again, even if it's not quite their regular level of activity, 
that likely means that there is nothing serious going on. It's the kind of thing that could wait until you call your pediatrician's office when they're open in the morning and really take next steps from there. Respiratory illnesses by and large, can be managed at home with supportive care, like keeping your child hydrated, keeping their fever under control. If it's a respiratory illness with a fever, you breathe faster and your heart rate is higher when you have a fever. So that's another good reason to try to get a fever down. Again, this may vary a bit depending on if your child has any underlying conditions like asthma, where they could get into trouble with a respiratory virus much more than a child without asthma. It's important to take those things into consideration but if those things have been relatively well controlled for and you're watching your child's breathing and it looks like they're working harder than usual to breathe or it looks like they're breathing at a faster rate than normal, don't hesitate to at least make a phone call to your pediatrician if not have them evaluated in urgent care or an emergency department setting. Any illness with either fever or respiratory symptoms, certainly any gastrointestinal illness with nausea and vomiting, can make a child more susceptible to dehydration. And so what's really important with any of those illnesses is to keep really encouraging your child to drink well. It's okay if their appetite for solids has dropped a bit when they're trying to fight an infection. They will be able to sustain with a lower caloric intake even for a few days. But what really is critical is that they are keeping up with their hydration. And signs of dehydration would mean that they haven't either gone to the bathroom to pee or made a wet diaper in more than six to eight hours. If when an infant or a young child is crying, they don't seem to have any tears. If their tongue looks really dry or their lips look sort of dry and sticky, any of those signs could be signs of dehydration that should be attended to immediately. Got it. This is so helpful. I think the first time seeing my child sick, just not wanting to eat, even though I know when I'm sick, I don't want to eat. It seems so much more like an emergency, just normal sicknesses. So it's so great to hear from somebody who knows that that stuff is normal and that as long as dehydration is not a concern, that those things will resolve. Thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I think we've learned a lot. So I want to thank you again so much for hopping back on with us. Sure. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to Kid Q&A. We've got another episode coming tomorrow, and it's all about a topic that drives us crazy and sparks endless debate. Sleep. This episode was skimmed by me, Jana Pollock, along with producer Alicia Key and the Skims head of audio, Graylin Brashear. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and he mixed this episode with Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Ko Tagasugi Chernobyl. 